Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everyone. I'm Christiane Amanpour, and welcome to the Amanpour Hour. Here's where we're headed this week. Fresh off his trip to the Middle East, I asked Senator Chris Van Hollen about the Israel genocide case and why America isn't doing more to stop the carnage in Gaza. Then, as awards season kicks into high gear, America Ferreira, star of That Barbie Speech, discusses an unforgettable moment. I do feel like the message is deeply universal. And Scott Galloway on the statistical certainty that something will stick to Trump in his many criminal trials. And what scares him most about AI. There's nothing more dangerous than a young, broke, and lonely man. Finally, from my archive, the moment peacekeeping US Marines rolled into Kosovo in the late 90s to stop ethnic cleansing. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Christiana Amanpour. Hearings began this week at the International Court of Justice in a case brought by South Africa accusing Israel of genocide in Gaza. Now the world faces an extraordinary possibility. The international law against genocide that was created after the Holocaust could be applied for the very first time against Israel itself. In response, Israel argues it's acting in self-defense after the horrors of October 7th and the slaughter of its civilians by Hamas. At the heart of South Africa's case is a litany of rhetoric from officials in Benjamin Netanyahu's government. Here's South Africa's senior counsel speaking in court on Thursday. Israel's political leaders military commanders and persons holding official positions have systematically and in explicit terms declared their genocidal intent. And these statements are then repeated by soldiers on the ground in Gaza as they engage in the destruction of Palestinians and the physical infrastructure of Gaza. Now, Israel has sent one of its most distinguished lawyers to defend this case. Speaking in Tel Aviv, Secretary of State Antony Blinken called the case meritless. Meantime, the war on Gaza still threatens to drag in the rest of the region. 
The Biden administration's strong support for Israel divides his party on this particular issue, heading into an election that Biden himself calls an existential choice for American democracy. Senator Chris Van Hollen is pushing back against the White House, proposing an amendment that would put conditions on American aid to Israel. And he's joining me now from Washington. Welcome back to our program, Senator. So firstly, can I ask you, do you, like the State Department, believe that this case is meritless? Well, Christian, it's good to be with you. Uh, I agree with the State Department's point uh, that Hamas initiated uh, this war and that Hamas uh, engaged in the atrocities on October 7th uh, with the intent of destroying uh, Israel. Uh, as to the South African claims, uh, I am following the case uh, closely. Uh, it is true uh, that many Israeli uh, government officials have made really outrageous statements about uh, collective punishment, about equating all Palestinians with Hamas. But there's a, a long way to go between those individual statements and attributing that intent uh, to the government of Israel. So I'll be watching it uh, closely. For now, I'm focused on the other uh, questions that you just mentioned. And just to read one, uh, you say, you know, the government of Israel, but, you know, there's a deputy speaker of their parliament, the Knesset, who said, uh, now we all have one common goal, erasing the Gaza Strip from the face of the earth. That's pretty conclusive language. Well, there have been absolutely outrageous uh, statements by numerous uh, Israeli politicians uh, calling this Nakba 2, uh, many talking about forced displacement about Palestinians outside of Gaza, uh, equating every uh, Palestinian uh, with Hamas. Uh, but again, uh, there's a difference between citing individual uh, members. I mean, members of Congress uh, sometimes make outrageous statements. Uh, so a distinction between that uh, and the actions of the government of Israel and the intent of the government of Israel. I, I assume that will be a lot of what the case is about and what judges will look at. So let me ask you, because you represent the United States, you've just come from the region, the U.S. is Israel's closest, closest ally, but clearly it's causing ructions, as I mentioned, for the Biden administration, even within his own party, the Democrats, your own party. Do you believe the administration has enough leverage because it keeps sending the Secretary of State and other officials to try to rein in the Israeli counteroffensive, to stop the carpet bombing and to be more targeted, to avoid the mass killings in Gaza? Well, Christian, I, I do believe that the Biden administration could exercise U.S. leverage uh, more effectively. Uh, they have succeeded in getting the Netanyahu government to make some very small uh, changes uh, in their conduct, uh, but not nearly enough to ch achieve Secretary Blinken's goal and President Biden's goal of uh, dramatically reducing the number of civilian casualties. Uh, we're now up to over 22,000 people dead, two-thirds of them women and children, and not enough uh, leverage to get the kind of humanitarian assistance into Gaza that's needed to address a desperate situation that's getting worse. So uh, I believe the Biden administration could and should be using more effective use of its leverage, of American leverage, uh, to accomplish our objectives. 
So can I just read a couple of things? I want to ask you about the amendment that you're proposing. First of all, Senator Bernie Sanders wants to introduce a question, uh, you know, for the State Department as to whether, you know, they, they accept to be asked how U.S. weapons are being used. Um, one uh, congressman says it also must be clear that America will not write a blank check for mass displacement. You had mentioned that mass displacement. And you yourself are calling from, for an amendment towards uh, aid. What do you want to put on the table? So the proposal that I've advanced, and it's supported by about 14 members of uh, my Senate colleagues and growing, uh, is an amendment that would apply to all of the recipients of U.S. military assistance uh, in the supplemental bill that President Biden put forward. So it would apply to Ukraine, it would apply to Israel, it would apply to any other country. There are three main points within that, uh, Christiane. One is every recipient of U.S. military assistance must comply with international humanitarian law, and we must get that commitment from them in advance before we provide any military assistance. Two, uh, those countries have to fully cooperate with U.S. efforts uh, to provide humanitarian assistance in an area where U.S. weapons are used. So Gaza would be covered, so would Ukraine. Uh, and then there's a reporting requirement uh, insisting that the Biden administration provide us with information so we can determine whether or not the first two uh, requirements uh, have in fact uh, been met with respect to all these countries. So uh, in my view, it's a very common sense provision. We, requ we should require more accountability of all U.S. recipients of military uh, aid. You say we should be, but as you know yourself, it's the first time really in a serious way this is being proposed, especially to your really stalwart ally, Israel. And I want to ask you about humanitarian aid, because that's also creating huge ructions you know, in, in, in the Middle East and desperate, desperate suffering inside Gaza. You were on the border there at Rafah, the Egyptian border to Gaza. What did you see about the delivery of aid, humanitarian aid for the people? Well, Senator Jeff Merkley and I went uh, very recently to, to the Rafah border crossing to see for ourselves uh, what was happening. And clearly the humanitarian crisis in Gaza is atrocious and getting worse. Um, two main takeaways. One, it's very difficult to deliver humanitarian aid within Gaza to the people who need it uh, when the Kogat authorities, the Israeli authorities, are, are not providing any kind of clear deconfliction rules, right? Making sure that aid workers don't get killed by bombs or by other munitions while delivering assistance. And all the international organizations we talked to uh, who have been involved in conflicts everywhere in the world for decades say they've never seen a more broken, ineffective, inadequate uh, deconfliction process, which is why you continue to see areas declared safe zones being later hit. Second, the effort and, and the, uh, the, the obstacles that people have to go over uh, to get goods into Gaza um, is way cumbersome. Um, and if you look at the Israeli inspection proceedings, for example, uh, we visited a warehouse, Christian, that was full of items that were rejected. I'm talking about uh, health kits for the delivery of babies. I'm talking about water filtration systems. I'm talking about water quality testing systems. These were rejected by the Israeli screening authorities, and when they say one item has to be rejected off the truck, they send the entire truck back, and these trucks sometimes wait up to 20 days to get in. Senator, 
the fear of the wider war in the Middle East. Again, you've just come back from there. Secretary of State has been doing massive shuttle diplomacy. What is your feeling about the status at the moment? I, I, from the very beginning um, of this conflict, uh, we've all been worried about escalation of a wider war. Uh, that is why President Biden sent two aircraft carriers uh, to the region uh, to deter Hezbollah from getting in, to deter the Iranians. Uh, so I think we have to be constantly on the watch and urging all the parties in the region to make sure that they don't take unnecessary escalatory actions, which could take what is already an awful situation uh, and blow it up even more. On the issue of Ukraine, which the United States has supported so incredibly, along with NATO allies, for nearly two years now, there are some really dire stories coming out from the Ukrainian battlefield about how they're running out of just about everything they need. What, what is it going to take? Is there any compromise you can see, uh, you're a senator, on what the Republicans are calling for, some you know, breakthrough on the, uh, you know, the, the, the border, the whole immigration picture? Well, uh, we have to get additional military assistance uh, to our Ukrainian partners. Um, uh, otherwise, Putin will be able to say to the world that the United States and uh, Ukraine's friends abandoned them. And of course, um, that will not only be disastrous for the people of Ukraine, but send an awful signal uh, to both friend and foe alike in other parts of the world, including President Xi. Uh, so we, we will see, but bottom line is, the United States people cannot abandon the people of Ukraine. On that note, Senator Van Hollen, thank you so much indeed for joining us. And coming up later on the program. Where are we going? Barbie land. What? Mom. I talk Barbie mania and Oscar controversy with movie star America Ferreira. Also ahead, what Scott Galloway fears most about artificial intelligence. But first, a CNN investigation reveals the fallout of Israeli strikes on Gaza's hospitals. That's next. Now, among Israel's actions that draw the most criticism is the targeting of hospitals and other vital medical facilities in Gaza. There have been more than 300 such attacks so far, according to the World Health Organization, all but destroying the entire health system there. While Israel says it's targeting terrorists hiding behind these civilian shields. But in a forensic, months-long investigation, CNN's Katie Poglaze explores whether the ends can really justify the means. Inside an ambulance at Al Auda Hospital in northern Gaza on November 9th. Nearby at the Indonesian hospital the same night, sheer panic. The first two months of war decimated Gaza's healthcare system as Israel launched an air, then land offensive on the north of the Strip. Out of 22 hospitals in northern Gaza, CNN has identified 20 that have been damaged or destroyed between October 7th and December 7th. Imagery analysed by CNN shows over half have been directly attacked. Several, including the two largest in Gaza, Al-Shifa and Al-Quds, were directly attacked by the Israel Defence Forces, this evidence suggests. At Al-Ahli Hospital, CNN previously found evidence a misfired rocket from Gaza was likely responsible for a deadly blast. 
but this appears to be the exception. It's called the Qatari hospital. Israel and US intelligence say Hamas used many of these hospitals as command and control centers, a claim Hamas denies. While protected under international humanitarian law, a hospital's protection during war is not absolute. There are instances where those protections can be lost, and that is for such time as they are being used uh, for military activities to sort of further the activities uh, of uh, an enemy. That does not give carte blanche to militaries to uh, launch an attack however uh, they want. This is Al-Quds, Gaza's second largest hospital. We modelled out how weeks of Israeli attacks around it caused severe damage and civilian harm. Behind the hospital on October 29th, an explosion has just hit. The director of Al-Quds spoke to CNN that day, saying there was bombing all around us. On November 7th, the IDF published a video of them conducting a strike just 100 metres from the hospital entrance, here. They claim they were targeting a Hamas weapons depot. The strike appears to have taken place on November 5th. This video from the ground shows people being stretched away from the scene and into the hospital. But inside already looked like this after days of strikes nearby. The IDF say they repeatedly told people to evacuate. Medical staff inside at the time said this was just not possible. The IDF legal advisor told CNN they did not attack Al-Quds Hospital, except in mid-November, when apparently returning fire from Hamas militants. Releasing this footage as evidence, 21 people were killed. The IDF said they were terrorists, but acknowledged civilians were still inside. Over at Al-Shifa Hospital, displaced civilians were sheltering in the courtyard where aerial attacks were intensifying. An IDF legal advisor again told CNN they did not attack Al-Shifa. But weapons experts told CNN this is a remnant of an Israeli illumination shell. A couple hours later and the maternity ward is hit. Here, part of an Israeli tank missile is found. Within a week, Israeli forces enter the hospital. We can see them uh, checking and searching the east part of, east part of the hospital. Al-Shifa was one of the hospitals the IDF and the US say Hamas were operating in. But when troops arrived, they appeared to have found very little evidence of this, publishing these videos of a network of tunnels. What the IDF videos don't show is what they would have found just metres away. Multiple graves dug by civilians who were forced to bury their loved ones within the hospital grounds amid the continued siege. The cameraman asks, who is in the grave? My mum, she replies. Can I just put to you a conversation I had with a legal advisor to the IDF? They said to me, at the end of the day, as long as Hamas continues to use these hospitals and facilities for the military operations, and our aim is to defeat Hamas militarily, there is absolutely no choice but to go there. Much of the death and destruction and damage, including to hospitals, healthcare facilities, is known in advance. It's part of the calculation, and that is absolutely a choice. And to frame it not as a choice is to frame 
that that death and destruction as just a, an inevitability. Those first two months of war are now among the most deadly and destructive of any conflict in recent history. The question remains as to whether any military objective can justify this. Katie Poglay, CNN, London. CNN sent a full list of the hospitals identified therein as damaged or destroyed to the IDF. And in response, the IDF said they did not conduct any targeted attacks against hospitals in the Gaza Strip. They also added that any strike which is expected to incidentally damage hospitals is approved by the highest echelons of command. Up next on the program, forget the hysteria about machines taking over the human race. Professor Scott Galloway tells me why loneliness is really the biggest threat of AI. There's nothing more dangerous than a young, broke and lonely man, and we're producing too many of them in the West. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. In our letter from London this week, Professor Scott Galloway joined me in the studio to talk about the mathematic probability that Donald Trump is going to jail, Joe Biden is getting a second term, and what scares him most about artificial intelligence. Scott Galloway, welcome to the program. It's great to be here. You have predicted that Biden will be reelected and Trump will go to jail in 2024. How sure and you be. Why are you saying that? Well, I don't think you can be sure. Um, if you look at the jurisdictions he's been charged in, they have between a 70 and 92 percent conviction rate. And only a third of people who receive the indictments or the charges that he's received don't end up with prison time. So even if you were to discount those statistics or cut them in half, because it is a different situation, it just seems mathematically improbable that he won't be sentenced to prison at some point. So it's become a bit of a game show. And that is, uh, his objective is to slow down the trials until after. But if you look at statistically the likelihood that one of these 93 charges will stick, it just feels mathematically likely uh, something is going to stick here. So they say 91, but nonetheless, we're just Excuse nitpicking me. here. It's okay. Thank you. Um, 
And you think these trials, at least one of them, will come to fruition and, you know, sentencing before the election? I think we'll find out in the next couple months. Mm -hmm. And American people have said, basically, that even though he's the front runner right now for the Republican nomination, and in some places even ahead of Biden in polls, which are far out, that they wouldn't vote for a convicted criminal, essentially. What do you think about the polls? Where do you think people are headed if he does get convicted? Well, the poll I've read is that 7% of his existing voters would say they wouldn't want to vote for someone who'd been convicted. And your first reaction is, that's exceptional that his base is that hardened at less than 1 in 10. But that 7% would be enough to make it virtually impossible. So, in that case, what is it that Biden seems unable to do or say to persuade you know, these crucial swing voters or those who will determine the election? Because you yourself have described the economy in general as just right. Look, of all the G7 economies, the U.S. is growing as faster, faster, and yet it has the lowest inflation rate. I mean, they've kind of pulled off the Goldilocks economy. What's interesting in the U.S., though, is that when people see their wages rise, they credit their own character and grit. And when they see inflation, they blame the government. So that's interesting. And clearly the media and social media have a big role to play. I've been struck by what a lot of people say is that there's just too much talk of Mm -hmm. Biden's age and not enough talk of what Trump represents uh, and, and the opposite. And the fact that, you know, Biden has beaten Trump and the Democrats have beaten, you know, the MAGA Republicans through all the elections, midterm and the like, uh, since 2020. Do you think the media and the intellectuals, you know, the public talking about Biden is also a little off? It keeps emphasizing the negative and not what you're just saying and not all the legislation and not all the infrastructure bills and the money that's pouring into various states. I think it's impossible to argue against that. And I, I would argue that his speechwriter most recently got your message. Trump's assault on democracy isn't just part of his past. It's what he's promising for the future. We must be clear. Democracy is on the ballot. Your freedom is on the ballot. That draws sharp relief between him and Trump. Didn't go after him personally, didn't go after him politically, said this is, are, are we a democracy or are we an autocracy? So does democracy sell? The messaging on democracy, does it sell to American voters? That's the correct question, because supposedly a third of Democrats and approximately a third of Republicans wouldn't mind an autocracy as long as it was his or her guy or gal, which is a frightening thing when you think about it. The polarization is so deep and so coarse in the United States that we now seem to be at least open to the idea that democracy might not be the way to go. Uh, You have said, I'm one of those who believes too much tech is concentrated in too few hands. So what does that mean for everything from democracy and civil society to, you know, personal habits and relationships? Well, just look at the markets. Last year, the the S&P and the NASDAQ had one of their best years in history, but it was really just seven companies referred to as the Magnificent Seven that were responsible for the majority of the gains. And when you have too much concentration of power, in the hands of a small number of organizations or people, it leads to bad things. So what will it do, for instance, AI? You know, as you said, it's barely regulated. In fact, it's not regulated right now. Well, I think we're about to see the first real externalities of AI. I think we're going to see the kind of the mother of all misinformation and disinformation in Q1 and Q2. And it's just logical. If you're Vladimir Putin and you're spending $70 billion a year and 100,000 lives on a, what to date has been a failed war in Ukraine, wouldn't you be smart to just take a fraction of that and spend it on AI um, calibrated and driven misinformation because the fastest blue line path to victory for Putin and Ukraine 
would be Trump's reelection. You're also this year, I think, going to see an acceleration in kind of the infrastructure or dynamics of loneliness. We're producing a cohort of young men who are falling off the map economically, have very few romantic prospects, are going to college less and less, have more and more of their on-ramps to the middle class being shut off in terms of middle class jobs in manufacturing, they've been offshored, and they are turning to algorithms and porn, quite frankly, to replace uh, relationships. So instead of real relationships, which is, I would argue, the most rewarding thing in life, they're turning to a reasonable facsimile of relationships with algorithms and content and um, AI, AI girlfriends. I think loneliness is the biggest threat from AI. So I necessarily wouldn't bring up a sex therapist at this point, but yep. you lead me into Esther Perel, who's spoken about this. Yeah. And she has such an incredible following. And she talked to me about precisely this threat and how it might even change us as a species. Listen to what she said about it. So what it creates is more seclusion, more virtualization of our lives. People have sex, but with themselves or online or in the virtual world. But they, it's not that they're not being sexual. They just do not interact with real life other people. And what it leads us to, this is a big question. Are we becoming a different species? Will mm -hmm. we ultimately become something else? And I think there's a good chance that that will happen. I mean, your reaction, that's a pretty, you know, big anthropological evolutionary thing to say. We're mammals. We're supposed to be around each other. We're supposed to touch. We're supposed to fall in love. We're supposed to procreate. Those are the most rewarding things in life. I mean, all of this, at the end of the day, it's not about GDP. It's not about inflation. It's about establishing deep and meaningful relationships. And the problem with men who don't have a romantic relationship is all their other relationships fall away. Women without a romantic relationship are much better at maintaining a friend network. It ends up that women are much better at finding places to put and receive love. But young men without a romantic relationship not only fall off the tracks from a relation, romantically, they fall off the tracks professionally. And there's nothing more dangerous than a young, broke, and lonely man. And we're producing too many of them in the West. Really interesting. Scott Galloway, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Christiana. Good to see you. And we'll have more of that interview during the week. Up next, red, white and pink, America Ferreira on that unforgettable moment in the billion dollar box office success, Barbie. It's like we all lose when we live inside of these boxes, literal and imagined. Welcome back to the program. It was arguably the most unforgettable moment in the billion-dollar blockbuster, Barbie. It is literally impossible to be a woman. We have to always be extraordinary. But somehow, we're always doing it wrong. You have to never get old, never be rude, never show off, never be selfish, never fall down, never fail, never show fear, never get out of line. I'm just so tired of watching myself and every single other woman tie herself into knots so that people will like us. 
Ah, yes, the perpetual double standards. America Ferreira there with a raw, honest and inspirational assessment of the impossible standards women are held to. With awards season shifting into high gear after the Golden Globes, where Barbie won for cinematic and box office achievement, I sat down with Ferreira here in L.A. to talk about this Barbie's subversive feminism and Oscar controversy. America Ferreira, welcome to the program. Thank you. How surprised were you at the huge impact that monologue had, your speech <laughs> in Barbie, which was already such a successful film? It was amazing to see how it hit the audiences and, and what the responses were. I know that when I, when I first read the script, everything before and after and including the monologue, we have to always be extraordinary but somehow we're always doing it wrong. I know that I was just blown away and it was all just so unexpected. And, and as a woman, I was just so excited, you know, that, that, you know, it's the Barbie movie that no one asked for, that no one thought we needed, you know? And, and, and kind of subversively, seriously feminist. Yes, yes. And nobody believed that. They thought it was just going to be another telling of a, of a really incredible doll that so many millions of girls around the world played with. Yeah, and it could have been that, you know? It very easily could have been something bright and fun and exciting and probably would have made a lot of money and, and been successful. But, but what Greta and, and her partner Noah did with the script and then Greta as the director creating this world, it was so generous. And it was so exciting. And, you know, as an adult woman, mother, you know, to get a third of the way into the script and then to meet this, this adult, real, flawed, you know, insecure, but having ambition woman, like struggling to be, you know, so many things to, to so many different people. It was so exciting to feel like we had a voice in the story. And you know, it, that I felt that way, independent of being asked to be a part of it, just as a woman in the world. So we played a little bit of that speech. Yeah. Uh, what would you say is the standout line, the standout message that you wanted, and maybe now really want even more to get across to young girls and even men? Yeah, I mean, I, that's the other piece of the generosity of this, is that um, Greta and Noah didn't, didn't only make Ken the butt of the joke. Everyone's the butt of a joke at some point. They gave him a real reason to be in the story. They 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 created a, a foil to the to the women's journey, to the journey about femininity, and and had this whole beautiful journey about masculinity and what it means for this character that Ryan Gosling obviously played with like Marlon Brando commitment. It was so <laughs> amazing. Yes, and so amazing to watch. I do feel like the message is deeply universal. It's not just for women or just for girls. It's like we all lose mm -hmm. when we live inside of these boxes, literal and imagined. And, and that we all are yearning and wanting to be more than the boxes that we get stuck in and we keep ourselves in. There's some controversy. Uh, Judd Apatow, the wonderful, you know, film and comedic personality, has basically said, um, you know, the idea of, of the Academy, the Academy Awards, putting Barbie in the adapted screenplay category for the Oscars instead of original screenplay, he said on Twitter, X, that it's insulting to writers. Do you agree? 
You know, I'm not a writer and I don't know the rules and the ins and outs mm -hmm. of the Academy. I think that it, you know, that there was no story before Greta got her hands on this to think that anyone handed anything to Greta. If anything, this IP and the fact that it was Barbie was a bigger obstacle towards creating an exciting new kind of groundbreaking story and character. It's wholly and completely original. Um, and I think that it should have been in the category that the writers chose to submit it in. Um, that said, I'm not an Academy Rules expert and I, I don't know. You, you told Mark Ronson, the music producer, there's gonna be a before Barbie and after Barbie. I did tell him that. So how did the world change before and after? And how did America Ferreira's world change? Oh, wow, those are two very big questions. I mean, I think that only time will tell what the real mm -hmm. cultural impact and, and individual impact for, for people watching this film um, can have. I know that as an artist, it is so deeply inspiring its creativity, its cinematic artistry, and also just the rules that it breaks, mm -hmm. you know? And, and I do think that it was, it was that bridesmaids moment, you know, where, where before that there was an unspoken acceptance that women weren't funny and that women's movies couldn't be funny and that if it was a movie about women men wouldn't watch it or other people wouldn't watch it and it couldn't travel and it couldn't make money and i do feel like there was a before bridesmaids and an after bridesmaids and and that's how i felt when i read the script when we were making the movie uh, there's going to be a before and an after and it's going to be about opening people's ideas of what's possible in storytelling and what we're capable of and that women's and girls stories actually do sell yes and and that and that their stories are our stories i grew up my whole life wanting to be tom hanks you know i grew up putting myself in men's shoes as a child like of course men can do the reverse of course people of all genders can see themselves in each other it's it's so simple but it's also a choice to, to place value in those stories and and Greta and Margot took a huge swing and and got people to take a massive bet and and they delivered America Ferreira yeah. thank you so much thank you and up next on the show, from the archive, what U.S. Marines found when they led the 1990s peacekeeping force into Kosovo. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast. New friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. From my archive this week, we begin with a major breakthrough in the Balkans. It sounds like small potatoes, but the fact that Serbia and Kosovo have agreed to defuse tensions by cooperating on vehicle license plates is in fact a step forward, since both sides use these symbols in their competing claims of nationalism. Back in 1999, I was there as the U.S. led a NATO coalition to free Kosovo from the brutal Yugoslavia 
Yugoslav rule. It was a victory for human rights that led to Kosovo's independence and its status as a vital U.S. ally. When I reported on U.S. Marines entering with the Kosovo Peace Force back then, we discovered the horrors the former Yugoslavia's Serbian troops had committed on Kosovo's Muslim majority. U.S. forces rolling into Kosovo get their first good look at just why they are here. Dismay fills these young faces at the sight of so many burned houses, at the stark evidence of ethnic cleansing. I think it's messed up. I'd, I wouldn't, uh, I'd hate to see this happen at home, and uh, I hate to see it happen anywhere. But it gets worse. This is the first mass burial site discovered by K4. U.S. troops are guarding it until war crimes investigators can exhume these 35 mounds of earth. And there are reports of many more in Kosovo. Marines and infantry soldiers check for mines and other dangers as they move into their designated sector of Kosovo. Uh, we're going to have the, uh, the attack helicopters uh, hovering around the rear. But this deployment goes smoothly. U.S. forces are surprised the only resistance they get from departing Yugoslav troops are a few choice words and a few obscene gestures. We thought there'd probably be some harassing stuff on the way out, maybe some mortar fire coming in to kind of slow us down, to kind of disorganize us. We thought there'd be a little bit more uh, sniper fire. Ethnic Albanians trickling back home treat NATO like an army of liberation, a sign that for them the tables are turning 10 years after Slobodan Milosevic stripped away their autonomy and their rights. So they give flowers to K4 troops and they give the finger to departing Serbs, soldiers and civilians. And then they rush to check out their homes. Gulia and her family find their standing, but the Yugoslav soldiers, her friends say were billeted here, have trashed it and stolen all the valuables. Nothing's here, nothing that I left. A wash machine, a dish machine. Even the shower was ripped from the wall. But it's six-year-old Miljad who's most traumatized. He's looking for his toys. They've been stolen too, and he's heartbroken. But it's a small price, his mother says, for freedom. Freedom, they say, that only NATO can guarantee. They are deeply suspicious of Russian maneuvers up the road in Pristina. The ethnic Albanians don't want Russian forces anywhere near them. And so in the end, the test of NATO's success is going to be how quickly these troops fan out and claim the country, establishing not just security, but control as well. And with Serbia's Russian ally continuing to threaten Europe today, the U.S. is pressing for peace, stability and accountability for war crimes in the Balkans. And that is about all the time we have for this week. Don't forget that you can find all of our shows online as podcasts at cnn.com slash podcast and on all other major platforms. I'm Christiana Manpour in Los Angeles. Thank you for watching and I'll see you again from London next week. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level.
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.